Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Look through your children's eyes, and you will discover the true magic of a forest. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hey, Elizabeth, you're the co-host of that new podcast, Ridiculous Crime. Why, yes, I am. You know what's ridiculous? Yeah, carpeting in kitchens and bathrooms. Oh, wow, you are good. But you know what's also ridiculous? A 16-year-old who breaks into a car dealership and steals Guy Fieri's Lamborghini. What? Yes, to impress a girl. I'll tell you all about it on Ridiculous Crime, our podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heist and cons. It's always 99% murder-free. And 100% ridiculous. Listen to Ridiculous Crime on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Art of Accomplishment podcast, we love anxiety, anger, sadness, and selfishness. Most people do everything they can to get rid of these emotions, but nothing makes them go away. We, however, welcome them, because they give us a healthy advantage if we know how to interpret their signals. Listen to the Art of Accomplishment podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to understand yourself and be who you were meant to be. I didn't set out to immerse myself in the murky realm of art fraud. In 2010, I found myself waging legal war with a dealer who sold me a painting that wasn't quite right, as they say in the art world. As fate would have it, my story was unfolding just as the Nodler Gallery scandal was taking center stage under intense scrutiny from the press. As an actor, I'm always looking for what defines a character. All con artists have their own definitive markings, and Friedman and Glafira Rosales presented themselves as courtly, almost academic. Yet behind their poise and professional demeanor, I always sensed an undertone of loneliness, even despair. To my surprise, these same traits are evident in both our stories in this final episode of the season. Art fraud is an ever-present phenomenon. Not long ago, Inigo Philbrick, a dapper young London dealer, managed to steal some $70 million from his friends and colleagues by selling fractional shares of paintings, then trading those shares like Monopoly cards. Oftentimes, pieces of one painting would be sold entirely twice over in what amounted to a sort of art world Ponzi scheme. Inigo was brilliant, says his friend Kenny Schachter, a droll and beloved columnist of the contemporary art market. Even more than like Gagosian or some other dealers, he could tell you the difference between a $2 million Christopher Wool painting and a $2.2 million. He would really have a cabal of people, Inigo, that he would sell work to, and then he would resell it amongst those participants unwittingly that were buying and selling art through him. 
Schachter lost $1.75 million when Philbrick vanished, only to be arrested on an island off the eastern coast of Australia. Kenny was left to wonder what had motivated his friend to commit such egregious acts of fraud, just as I'd wondered about my dealer, Mary Boone. I suspect the motivation is almost always universal. Greed. We'll get into my sordid story in a bit, but first, I want to tell you the story of artist Robert Indiana, creator of the iconic Love Sculpture. The whole world knows those four letters, two over two, that spell love with its O at a debonair slant. Long ago, Indiana had lived with artist Ellsworth Kelly on Coenty's Slip, the artist's wharf in Lower Manhattan. But in the early 80s, he'd come to the coast of Maine and never left. His home was a rambling Victorian lodge hall on the scruffy island of Vinylhaven, about halfway up the coast of Maine near Rockland. There his career had stalled, for Indiana refused to trademark or copyright any of his work and let tacky commercial spin-offs of love define him. By the end of the 70s, he had moved out of New York City, moved to Maine, and moved to Vinyl Haven, Maine, which is an island an hour off the coast that you can only get to by ferry or small engine plane. And so he was as isolated as they can get. That's Luke Nickus, the lawyer who represented Ann Friedman in the DeSole trial, and now found himself fighting a perhaps more noble campaign on behalf of the iconic artist Robert Indiana. He was gone as far as the art world was concerned. Throughout the 80s, he made works here and there, but he wasn't a superstar anymore. He wasn't recognized. And by the end of the 80s, he might as well not even have existed in terms of his presence in the fine art world. That was when an art advisor named Simon Salama Caro started knocking. Salama Caro had seen his work and was interested in meeting with Indiana to talk with him about rejuvenating his career. He saw a path. He saw a path of reintroducing Indiana's work to art historians, to museums. He saw a path of getting the infringing use uh, of Indiana's images under control. No more shoes, no more trinkets, no more use that was outside of what Simon thought would really bring the brand back. Salama Caro steered his work away from schlocky spin-offs to sculptures in what Indiana came to call admiringly the noble materials. He also extricated the artist from an unpaid $600,000 in taxes and liens on his home. Such guidance didn't come for free. Salama Caro worked for the Morgan Art Foundation, a for-profit that held the rights to produce Indiana's best-known works but Indiana could see it had promise. Morgan would take the copyrights and the trademarks, would give Indiana 50% of the, the revenue from the use of those images, so it would be a split between them. And Morgan would monitor and clean up the market for Indiana's images. It went all over the world and started bringing infringement suits, cease and desist letters. And ultimately what that did was it created the very clear message that Indiana's imagery could not be exploited. 
At the same time, Morgan put millions and millions and millions of dollars of funding behind the fabrication of Indiana sculptures, which are extremely expensive to fabricate, difficult to fabricate. You need real facilities that Indiana did not have. 10 years later or so, 15 years, the Whitney Museum in New York City had a major retrospective of Indiana's work, and he was back on the map again, extraordinarily successful. And then what happened? Michael McKenzie came into the picture. In 2008, advisor Michael McKenzie had a brilliant idea. Why not change Indiana's love to hope and make it the banner for the surging Obama presidential campaign? As McKenzie deepened his relationship with Indiana over hope, he began expanding. Hope prints on canvas, more hope sculptures, more colors of hope. Expand, expand, expand. And then he bought a studio on Vinyl Haven near Indiana to have better access to him. Soon other operators began swooping in. I spoke with Bob Keyes, a longtime reporter for the Portland Press-Herald, who just published a fascinating book titled The Isolation Artist, Scandal, Deception, and the Last Days of Robert Indiana. Keyes described the circle of operators well. Jim Brannan is a longtime attorney in Rockland, Maine. He became much more closely involved in Indiana's affairs and in 2016 helped change Indiana's will that made him the executor of the estate. And uh, Jamie Thomas, who was then an island caretaker, became much more involved in Indiana's personal affairs and he became the power of attorney as well as the health care power of attorney. And from that point on, uh, Indiana certainly lost control of much of the legal and professional aspects of his life in terms of his legal representation. And Jamie Thomas was authorized at that point to make business decisions for him as power of attorney. That's when we began to see much more work attributed to McKenzie start to come out of the uh, Indiana studio at a time when Indiana was definitely in failing health and had not made new work in quite a while. Now, is that to say that that it looked to you and others as if what McKenzie and uh, Thomas were doing, and perhaps Brandon as well, was forging? Uh, Forging is a legal term. I think what they were doing was pushing the boundaries of what was authentic work. The work was suspicious right away in the eyes of many people who knew it. It didn't seem authentic. My reporting suggests that Indiana probably was aware of its creation, but not involved with it, and, and looked the other way. And that was fairly common during that point in his life. And what did it mean that Thomas became a beneficiary, I guess, of the estate? I mean, he had nothing to do with making art. Why was he written into the will? Thomas was written into the will because Indiana at some point surrounded himself with people from the Vinyl Haven community who were loyal to him, and Thomas was in that camp. Thomas had a relationship with Robert Indiana that went back many decades. There is a lot of debate among people who worked with Indiana how close they were, but it is a fact at his 80th birthday party in 2008, Indiana invited Jamie Thomas to it, and that was a pretty personal affair, so they definitely had a friendship. Jamie Thomas ultimately convinced Indiana to make him the power of attorney. And then we see Thomas's text messages with McKenzie. 
up until the point Indiana died, where they were texting back and forth about works that we, they would create together. You can envision the text, W-I-N-E, and, and so forth and so on. You know, stacked four-letter words. They were texting back and forth that they should create on their own while Indiana was on his deathbed. And so Mackenzie deepened that relationship, built it with Thomas. Thomas was on the inside. Thomas became involved in Indiana's life at a time when his health was failing and many people on the island saw him as coming in to help get Indiana out of some more trouble. But there's no question that in so doing, he also isolated Indiana from all of his art world contacts who could no longer reach him and interview him and talk about things. And at the same time, there was a large body of work coming out of his studio and it had the mark of Mackenzie all over it. Fine art friends like legendary Dartmouth art professor John Wilmerding started knocking on the door of Indiana's Vinyl Haven home and getting no response. John Wilmerding made at least an annual trip to see Robert Indiana at the Star of Hope every summer. I believe the last time he saw Indiana was in the fall or late summer of 2015. Wilmerding made a comment to Indiana that it sort of looks like the school of Indiana, and Indiana sort of shrugged and said, I guess in some ways that it is. Wilmerding never saw him again. He tried to reach him. He sent emails that were not returned. He had terse responses from others in in the Indiana camp and basically was told, you're no longer going to be able to see him. And other people were peeled away as well. By early 2018, attorney Luke Nikas, representing the Morgan Art Foundation, alleged that the trio of art publisher Michael McKenzie, caretaker Jamie Thomas, and local business partner James W. Brannan had taken control of the 88-year-old artist. Indiana lived in an old sort of mason's home. It was a very old home, big, beautiful home, tons of space, but also in need of significant repair that wasn't kept up over time. And so Indiana's bedroom was on the top floor, and near the end of his life, they took the staircase that went from his bedroom out of the house, down to his yard, out of the house. They completely removed it. Uh, We were told by studio assistants that the locks were changed so they couldn't get in to help Indiana, that windows were boarded up uh, so that he couldn't yell out or reach out for help. And so this was total isolation in the extreme to prevent Indiana from reaching out to the people he knew could help him out of this situation. There was more, Luke learned. The trio had taken over Indiana's email account, his voicemail, and had completely controlled every aspect of his life for the last several years. Not only did Morgan allege Jamie Thomas stole money from Indiana and diverted opportunities from Indiana, but Morgan alleged that Jamie Thomas and Michael McKenzie had conspired to forge works in Indiana's name The trio had even stolen images that the Morgan Art Foundation owned and sold those images as Indiana's, even though they weren't. We found an Instagram post, a video of someone signing in McKenzie's studio, Robert Indiana Works with an auto pen or a ghostwriter. And in the middle of the video, the studio assistant said forgery and posted that McKenzie, her boss, was forcing her to forge paintings, and if the police came, she would, quote-unquote, sing like a bird. 
And so we, we filed this lawsuit alleging that McKenzie had forged these paintings. The very next day, in May of 2018, Indiana died. Despite Indiana's death, the case forged ahead. We jumped into discovery in the case, got more information uh, related to the works that were being made. We have witnesses, we took testimony. And then throughout the case, Michael McKenzie testified that he had absolutely no more works by Indiana in his possession. He wasn't making any works. The entire business was shut down in that respect. Two weeks ago, I inspected Michael McKenzie's property to look at the works that were on the property. And it turns out there were over a thousand works on the property that were supposedly by Robert Indiana. Stencils that he was using with certain years, 2015, 2017, stamped on the back of the paintings that were used as Indiana's signature. So I went to the judge and I asked for more discovery given that we had been denied information and then was allowed to go out again and inspect the entire studio. And when I was there, I cataloged the entire blueprint of how Michael McKenzie operated. The catalog resume of Robert Indiana's works was tabbed with post-it notes. He had a full composition notebook of drawings of Indiana works he was creating. And so we went back to the court and said, he's forging works. This is the blueprint. This is the forger's den. I received a phone call from one of Michael McKenzie's now former friends. And what he said was two things. Number one, Michael McKenzie still forging works. He just forged 150 in his studio. Here's a picture. He's stamping the back of those works with 2015 stencils, with 2017 stencils. He's selling them for a lot of money all over the world. And production was still ramping up. When you came to the studio under court order, allowed to inspect his property to see what he had created, in the middle of the day and night before you arrived, he shipped seven truckloads of art off the property into a storage facility to prevent you from seeing what he had done. Luke got a declaration from McKenzie under oath detailing all of this detailing the forgeries he was making, detailing how he was using the stencils, detailing Mackenzie's proclivities toward guns and threats and the way he deals with people in his workplace. And so we got that declaration under oath, went back to the judge, and the judge is now opening up a whole other phase in the case for violation of all of these discovery orders that she's issued. In the summer of 2021, Luke Nickus demonstrated the automatic signature machine that signed Indiana Prince and showed the troves of forgeries. With that, three of the parties settled. The Morgan Art Foundation, the artist's Star of Hope Foundation, and the estate itself. Perhaps now, top-quality Indiana works could be sold again. Also participating in the settlement, were Jamie Thomas, the island caretaker, and Jim Brannan, the lawyer. Left out was Michael McKenzie, who said he would work with both parties, but implied the wrangling wasn't done yet. Quote, I can take this apart, he warned his partners in the New York Times. The terms were secret, which struck many as odd, since the Star of Hope is a non-profit foundation. 
There are many people who believe that settlement needs to be made public because the Star of Hope Foundation is a public entity in Maine and it's uh, the taxpayers and their citizens and residents of Maine have uh, a vested interest in the outcome of it. And it's worth maybe a million, a hundred million dollars, the estate. Wow. And uh, as taxpayers, we have a right to know at least what it says and, and who's going to benefit from the estate and where the artwork is going to go. Indiana wanted his artwork on view and for public consumption. That's what he cared most about. What I'm struck by in this story is the efforts Indiana made to get his name back and to get the valuation of his work back. And he's successful, but then he runs into these people and it just blows up in his face. Ultimately, this is the story of a brilliant but lonely man whose art may never have filled the hole in his heart. Certainly, he never had another long-term partner after Ellsworth Kelly. As for the Vinyl Haven community, despite welcoming the great artist in early 1983, the local fishermen and their families had cut Indiana off amid shocking charges. Indiana had been arrested for solicitation of prostitution in 1990 and stood accused of paying minors for sex. One local boy testified that he was 12 when the abuse began and that it had continued for six years. Another accuser also came forward. A legal proceeding acquitted Indiana of the charges in 1992. Indiana said he felt lucky to be acquitted, a sentiment that left the islanders outraged. I feel that uh, Indiana brought on a lot of the problems himself because of his inability to resolve the conflicts. He suffered from a lot of issues in terms of his youth and his lack of trust and his inability to let people close to him, and that really did affect him at the end. I feel sorry for him because of his lack of personal tools that one needs to navigate the world. He didn't have a healthy youth growing up, and he never figured out how to live in the world in a partnered sort of way. All he was left with in the end was hope. After the break, Michael Schneerson and I will talk about Mary Boone, Ross Blechner, and a painting I loved and finally was able to purchase. Sort of. Hey, it's your girl, Emily Curl from iHeartRadio, and whether you work, create, or play, Logitech is designing products for you to unleash your creativity and defy the logic of the past. They're on a mission to inspire the next generation of creators as they define the new logic of tomorrow. Build a podcast, start a live stream, gain a following. The options are endless. And how cool is this? You can work from virtually anywhere on the beach, in the air. I know my family in Georgia will be especially excited that I can take more frequent trips. So with Logitech's range of superior quality, beautifully designed and precisely engineered products, you can follow your passions and define the new logic of tomorrow. Logitech, defy logic. For more information, visit logitech.com slash defy logic. 
Adoption of teens from foster care is a topic not enough people know about, and we're here to change that. I'm April Dinwiddie, host of the new podcast, Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Each episode brings you compelling real-life adoption stories told by the families that live them with commentary from experts. Visit adoptuskids.org slash podcast or subscribe to Navigating Adoption, presented by Adopt US Kids. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families and the Ad Council. What grows in the forest? Trees? Sure. Know what else grows in the forest? Our imagination, our sense of wonder, and our family bonds grow too. Because when we disconnect from this and connect with this, we reconnect with each other. The forest is closer than you think. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. In the 1940 movie Gaslight, Ingrid Bergman finds herself wondering why her possessions are moving and vanishing. Is she losing her mind? I thought about that movie, Alec, when I first heard about your own personal brush with art fraud. So how did that happen? Well, you know, for a long time, I had walked around with uh, this mailing card that I got from Mary Boone Gallery selling a painting by Ross Blechner. And I, I had it with me and, you know, kind of stared at it every now and then thought, wow, I wonder where that painting is. And I mean, I, I, I wasn't someone who was keen on researching that and chasing that down. First of all, let's talk about Blechner a minute and, and sort of put him in context. He had come up uh, in the early 80s in a group of young, very dramatic artists represented by the Mary Boone Gallery. They were doing something new you know, breaking out of abstract and minimalist art that, frankly, most people were tired of. And Mary saw that the market was ready for big, bold paintings with a lot of color, paintings you can understand. So by the early 1980s, she had the hottest gallery in New York. Perhaps not by coincidence, her artists were mostly male, handsome, very dramatic. They were artists who actually looked and acted like artists. Painters like Julian Schnabel with his broken plate paintings, Eric Fischel with his paintings that showed a dark side of suburban life, and David Sally, who painted sensuous women among various symbols, and finally, Ross Blechner. So what was it about Ross Blechner that you liked, you know, more than those other artists? I think just the colors. I mean, you know, my own personal taste. You know, I think that picture just kind of cast a little tiny spell on me, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I I like I said, I wound up carrying that in a sheaf of papers that I had in a little binder. One day, as luck would have it, I met Ross and a bunch of other people for Ross's birthday, which coincided with another opening he had at Mary Boone. And I went, saw a painting I liked. I had to hustle out the door because we were late to another appointment. I came back the next day. That painting was sold. You went into that event one night, I think you said, in uh, 2010. Right. We went to the gallery because it was Ross's birthday. Yeah. And we went to the opening, and then we were hustled out of the opening very quickly. I was like, well, I'd like to spend some time here and look at some of the paintings. And they were like, what? You know, they weren't there to buy any of Ross's paintings, his friends. So I came back the next day, and I said to Mary, that's the painting I want. She said, well, that's sold. And then you realize, well, of course it did. 
And she said, but you come in and we, and we can talk. I go to a computer with her and I, and I take her to see and mirror the painting that I'd refer to in the, in the mailer that I carried around, the holy grail here, if you will, of Ross's paintings to me. I said, that picture, I said, where is that? She goes, I think I can get that for you. I think that guy will sell that painting. So that was the picture, that was literally the image that you had had on your card that you were walking around with? That was the painting, Sea and Mirror from 1996. She said, I know who bought that. And uh, she said, I think I can get it for you. I presume you thought, well, that could be expensive if she's going to persuade someone to sell the painting back to you. But you said, go ahead and try your luck. You know, Mary, if you can do it, great. And only the next day, if not even that day, she called you back to say what? She said, I got the painting. Yeah. Now, the, the, the paintings that were contemporary, the paintings that were from that gallery exhibit in and around that time, were in the high five figures. She then came to me and said, I can get you this painting for $190,000. And it was more than double the $85,000 that Ross was getting for the other paintings. They were in the, the $85,000 range. So what was her rationale for why you should pay you know, more than twice. I was buying the 1996 painting. She was saying how I'm buying it from this collector and that's what he wants. He wants $190,000 for the painting. I said, great, I'll take it. I was just completely, completely overjoyed that I uh, could get the painting. Thrilled with the opportunity he'd been presented to finally own his own holy grail of paintings, Alec purchased Ross Blackner's Sea and Mirror from Mary Boone for the agreed price of $190,000. A short time later, the painting arrived at Alec's office on the Upper West Side. So we had them hang the painting, and when they hung the painting, it reeked very strongly of some chemical like paint thinner, turpentine, some astringent kind of chemical smell like that. And then I called her. And I said, that gauzy, feathered effect that is on display in this painting in the 1996 Sea and Mirror, like no other. I mean, it's probably one of his gauziest series of paintings and very watery. It doesn't look like that at all. Mm. It doesn't look like that at all. And I said, what's going on? And it smells of this chemical. She said, well, we took it off the stretcher and we cleaned it because the previous owner was a heavy smoker and we wanted to clean the painting. (laughs) And I thought... Uh-huh, okay. And, but, and, and even though cleaned, I thought cleaning wouldn't affect the technique of the painting. Right. It was almost like she was suggesting that the cleaning of the painting had altered the very nature of the painting. It was very bright and very vivid. It wasn't at all like the other paintings. I said, look like a bag of M&Ms spilled on the floor. It was very bright and very shiny. The, the colors weren't the same. In the original Sea and Mirror, there are really strong... The yellows are very buttery. Mm. Uh, The reds are very maroon and very burgundy and very strong. These are my favorite colors. There's violets that are just all these haunting colors. And then the ones that he did for this picture, I mean, I I sometimes wonder if he even painted this, if it was like some assistant or something, because it was really nowhere at all remotely like the original painting. And she said to me, well... We took it off the stretcher in case we had to repair some cracks and so forth. And later on, I consulted with someone else who told me, that's nonsense. 
I just find it so fascinating that, you know, you called Mary and she just had this song and dance about how it, it was the real painting. It was the painting that you had wanted, that you'd carried around a picture of all these years. You know, she could have gone a whole other way here. She could have said, you know, I couldn't get that painting, but here's some others from the series. Well, I mean, you know, I, I always live inside a world of alternatives. You know, what mm. might have happened? What choices might people have made? And one of the uh, things that was just clear to me was if you'd come to me and said, I can't get the painting. The guy in California that owns the 1996 Sea and Mirror, I either can't find him or he doesn't want to sell. My point is, is that if she'd come to me and said, I'll have him paint you a copy. I'll have him paint you another in a series of these types of paintings. I would have said, great. And it wasn't like I'm saying, oh, when you're going to charge me $85,000, too, like I, like I was obsessed about the price. The important thing is I would have accepted a copy. Mm-hmm. Had they told me it was a copy, we could have negotiated the price. But instead, she didn't say it was a copy. She put the bin number of the 1996 painting on the back of the painting she sold me. Ah. She put the date, 1996, on the back of the painting she sold me. Uh, all of it was just reeked of foul play, so to speak. The fact that you're handing me the painting in 2010 and you're putting the date 1996 and it wasn't the painting from 1996, you put a fake date on there. When all this went down and she was confronted legally, the statute of limitations had passed, but she decided to go a completely different way. She insisted that I knew it was a copy. I knew what I was buying. She had never represented to me that this was the original painting. She swore up and down that I knew I was buying a copy of Sea and Mira from 1996, not the original painting, which was not true. And then when we went back to the DA and said, she charged me the 1996 price, I just bought two paintings from her that were freshly made, so to speak, that were freshly baked, and they were in the high five figures. Why would I pay $190,000 for a freshly baked Ross now? That was exhibit A, if you will. And the other was the date and the bin number. And when this thing was on my wall, I said to myself, and again, I think it's an important point, that it wasn't around me all the time. I travel uptown, I go to that office, I go, oh, there it is. And I say, so that means Ross is a fake. Mm. And Ross I was kind of friendly with. And I thought, well, this means Ross ripped me off. And I thought, or not. I mean, maybe Ross was told... He's okay with a copy, make him a copy, and I'm going to sell him this copy. Mm. I believe she played both of us. I believe she said, Ross, he wants a copy of CN Mirrors. And she said to me, I'm going to get you the original CN Mirrors. He thought one thing, I thought another thing. As it turned out, that's exactly what happened. We reached out to Ross Bleckner for comment, and he was gracious enough to respond. While we don't feel comfortable reading his response verbatim, we can say that Ross's own recollection of the events is precisely what Alex suspected. That is to say, Mary Boone contacted Bleckner and asked him to paint a copy of Cien Mir for a client. He didn't hear from Mary Boone after that once she took possession of the painting. The moment we subpoenaed her emails, (laughs) and she produced, and Ross produced a bunch of emails, and she produced almost none, and the judge said... If you don't give me these emails, if you're saying you don't have emails of your exchange with him that discussed this early on, you know, at the onset, 
I was amazed at how firm the judge was and how clear the judge was. The judge says, if you don't do this, I'm going to assume you're hiding something. Mm. I'm I'm going to automatically assume there's something you're hiding. Mm -hmm. And they were just shrieking up and down that they couldn't wait to have at me in the courtroom and all this other stuff. Mm. And I thought, okay, okay. And then once we subpoenaed all of her emails to any sales of Ross Blechner, because we knew deep down inside that she didn't wake up one day and start doing this with me that day. We wanted to check and see, were we in the territory of a class action suit with a grouping of people who had been treated this way in some way. And the moment we subpoenaed all of her emails to discuss that, they settled and they wrote me a check for a million dollars. Wow. I want you uh, to tell me about going to Marianne Boski. You were going to see some paintings she was going to show you of Thornton Dial. And what happened? That became a real turning point. When I said to her that Mary said we took the painting off the stretcher in order to repair it and clean it, I think she said it needed to be repaired. Mary Ann Boski said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, what do you mean? She said, she would never have taken the painting off the canvas and repaired it and cleaned it without your permission. Mm. She just took it upon herself, she's claiming to do that. Oh, we just did that for you. And she said, it it never happens that way. She said, this is in all likelihood a fake. Mm. It, it, It looks like a fake and it smells like a fake because it is a fake. Mary Ann Boski has been an art dealer for 25 years. She started her first gallery in 1996, and her current gallery on 24th Street in New York has been open since 2006. Alec visited with Marianne recently at her gallery. She recalled their original conversation about that ill-fated painting. You just said, is it strange that I would have gotten, you know, a painting after I bought it and it would look different than the image that it looked like? Brighter. And then was told that it was cleaned, and I was like, that's definitely strange. And then we kind of continued talking about it. And I, you know, I had real empathy for you. That was a terrible situation. But if the painting comes off the stretcher to be cleaned or repaired, that's something that would affect the value of the painting. Not necessarily. So let's say I had a Lisieux scavenge. Someone came back with a Lisieux scavenge that I sold them in 2001, and it had some schmutz on it, right? What I would do is I would have a conservator look at it and recommend what needs to be done. Can it be cleaned? Do you need to in-paint? Is there damage? Then I would call Lisa, or her. if I didn't know her personally, I would call Swerner, and I would say, I have this, and here's the situation. Does Lisa want to look at it? And she would either say yes or no, or they would say, um, you know, she'd like to fix it herself. And if she fixes it herself, it's not really going to be any kind of diminution in value because it's her, you know, just making sure that her work is in good shape. So, or if she wanted to clean it, that's not going to change anything except clean it. But if she's then said, I, you know, there's a tear in it and it needs to be fixed, I recommend you go to so-and-so to fix it because they're the best at my work. So now I have this painting that is on consignment and it's been torn and sewn and, and Lisa has opined on who needs to fix it and we've gotten it fixed and we spent $6,000 fixing it, whatever it is. Then when I go to offer that painting to someone, I have to tell them, you can't see it, but right here, mm-hmm. if you look on the back. You have to tell them. I, you feel you do. I do, yes. There's a little mark here. The artist has looked at it. The artist has approved the work that was done on it and chose the person to do it, but transparency. 
More art fraud in a minute. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, it's Bobby Brown. You might know me as the makeup artist, beauty expert. You might also know me as the founder of Jones Road Beauty. But today I'm here with a brand new podcast, The Important Things. On this new podcast, I'll be joined by my co-host and dear friend, international best-selling author, attorney, and TED Talk alum, Anjali Kumar. Together, we want to answer the question, how can you lead a life of fulfillment? The ongoing pandemic has given us all the opportunity to examine what really matters most to us and what brings us true contentment. Each week, through candid conversations with friends, thought leaders, creators, and entrepreneurs, Bobby and I are looking for ways we can all learn to live more authentic, gratifying lives. You can look forward to learning from our amazing guests, including the incomparable Gloria Steinem, entrepreneur and designer Jennifer Fisher, Senator Cory Booker, charity founder Christy Turlington Burns, and many, many more. So join us every other week as we dig deep into the stuff that really matters on The Important Things. Listen to The Important Things on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're live here outside the Perez family home just waiting for the... And there they go. Almost on time this morning. Mom is coming out the front door strong with a double-arm kid carry. Looks like Dad has the bags. Daughter is bringing up the rear. Oh, but the diaper bag wasn't closed. Diapers and toys are everywhere. Ooh, but mom has just nailed the perfect car seat buckle for the toddler. And now the eldest daughter, who looks to be about nine or ten, has secured herself in the booster seat. Dad zips the bag closed, and they're off. Ah, but looks like mom doesn't realize her coffee cup is still on the roof of the car. And there it goes. Oh, that's a shame. That mug was a fam favorite. Don't sweat the small stuff. Just nail the big stuff. Like making sure your kids are buckled correctly in the right seat for their age and size. Learn more at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Alec, what did you think of that moment when Marianne first told you your treasured seat and mere painting was in all likelihood a fake? Because that was really the moment. So I gather that this hits home. How did that hit you emotionally? Well, I think two things. One is I had to kind of uh, sort out in my head what Ross's involvement was, because mm. uh, I was very concerned about that as, in, in, in any civil litigation. Now, Ross wound up giving me, uh, uh, the, he wound up making me a facsimile of Sea and Mirror that I have in my home now. Oh. I have the honest copy. <laughs> That's great. I said, give me the copy of the painting that is, and then he gave me another painting to settle our dispute, if you will. You know, it's a funny situation because, I mean, yes, it was a fraud, but it was a fraud enacted by the painter who painted the original. See, what's funny is, when in the litigation he made me the copy of Sea and Mirror that I have in my home that is the genuine copy, well, there it is. <laughs> 
It's true. When he wanted to put his mind to it and get it right, he did. Yeah, that's really bizarre. When the original painting arrives, it's not even close. Yeah. But when he's told to do it exactly, the copy, it's very close. It's it's pretty pretty spot on. Because you wonder how many more copies of it are there out there. Yeah. If he could so handily render facsimiles of Sea and Mirror, then how many more were out there? How many more people were told they were buying the original painting? How many more canvases have 1996 written on the back and the bin number Yes. that I had? But as I said, once we wanted to open up a can of worms which would have discussed that, once we wanted to speak in court about where else she might have done this, they settled the case. You know, when all this went down and I had gone to the DA to investigate our options and, and, and see what was going on, you know, one aspect of it was that this was all so unnecessary. If I had been someone who had had some difficult relationship with Mary, if there'd been some friction between us, especially in the art world, if wanting to settle a score with me, get even with me, I didn't really know Mary on a personal level. So there was really nothing between us that engendered that kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand why she would do that to me. That's that's what really, really upset me. And then I thought to myself, that's the whole point. You can walk in as a very innocent person who just is a lover of art. I mean, I realize I'm not spending tens of millions of dollars on a, on a Pollock. It's not like the Lagrange case and, and Friedman and Nodler and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy walking in buying something in the high five figures, the you know low six figures. But I'm wondering, I'm assuming that some of us are like some of the bread and butter of that business. Mm -hmm. and, and, and even if we aren't, what's the amount of money I need to spend on the painting for you to treat me fairly? If I walked in the door and you said, let me just tell you this privately, Mary would say. Now, I'm going to sell you a knockoff, a bogus painting, for the amount of money you're willing to spend. But if you spend more money, if you're willing to give me more money, I'll actually go get you the painting you want. <laughs> I won't rip you off. I mean, in other words, which was it? What did I need to do to deserve the fair treatment? I didn't understand any of why this happened. I guess I'll never know. Alec, we started working on this podcast a little over a year ago. And I remember at the time, you said that you believed Anne Friedman. Your opinion was that she didn't know the paintings were fake, and she hadn't sold them as fakes. And I said I felt just the opposite. And so I wonder, after a whole year of immersing ourselves in this podcast and talking to over two dozen experts, artists, lawyers, and journalists, have your beliefs held firm? Do you still think Anne Friedman had no idea she was complicit in a forgery scheme? Well, I think that what has changed is this idea that something hinges on everybody doing something they've never done before. Whenever people walk into a room and there's a time-honored process they have, there's a protocol they have, and all of a sudden they throw that out the window to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. I mean, it's $70 million in, in fake art that was sold. Here, this gallery, there was no excuse. These people have no excuse. Ann Friedman, Hammer, everybody involved in this case, these were the, the top people in the field. And what they didn't know, they summoned experts to come in and aid them and to uh, counsel them on what to do. What I believe now is Ann knew she shouldn't have done what she did. Ah, but there we she go. pressed forward. Well, then, my friend, we are in agreement. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I really believe that people arrive at a place and they believe, wrongly as it turns out, that there's no turning back. Turning back in their mind was almost worse. They thought, let's see what happens if we get away with it. Yeah. And if they got away with it, then everybody would be walking around staring at a fake Rothko and everybody would be happy. Who'd know? Right. Really, the person, I think, who is the hammer that just shatters the whole stonework of this thing is Lagrange. Mm. When Lagrange flies over here and has an apoplectic fit right. against this woman, I mean, this is a guy who's just not going to be denied. I, I agree with you. And then also just the sheer number of fakes that began to come forward. You know, you could believe a couple of them lacked provenance. When you're up to 40, it all lacked provenance. This is something that occurred to me when Glafira came to speak with us, and that is I thought, if this woman had gone into Anne and she'd had the least bit of a whiff of uh, insincerity, a sense of theater or something being fabricated or false about her, when I met her, it all fell into place. Yeah. I thought, who could go in and do this to Anne? Who could fool Anne? Who would it have to be? And not to be somebody who, she's like a school teacher. She's like a kindergarten teacher. Yes. I think that very day you said to me, you know, I believe her. You didn't believe Anne, but you did believe Gulfira. One thing I know for sure. There were 60 or so fake paintings sold by the Weissman and Nodler galleries and it leaves me with a haunting thought. Where are those paintings today? We know the DeSole's fake Rothko ended up in attorney Luke Nickus's office, a story to tell curious clients. Francis Beatty's fake Clifford Still found its way to the basement only to get misplaced. Anne Friedman's own fake Pollock with the misspelled signature was still hanging in her home, last we heard. We also know a few of the paintings made their way into legal proceedings from various lawsuits. But what about the 50 or so others? How many of those fakes have been sold very quietly by buyers eager to expunge the stain of fraud from their walls? Buyers who may have recouped their losses, illegally, of course. Perhaps they even profited, as Anne Friedman assured them they would, with paintings from the David Herbert collection. And that's it for Art Fraud. Most of the listeners of this show will never purchase a piece of fine art in their lives. We hope you've enjoyed this show nonetheless. And for those who are real collectors, remember, if you can fool Anne Friedman, you can fool anyone. Kiss today goodbye The sweetness and the sorrow Wish me luck the same to you But I can't regret what I did for love What I did for love Look my eyes are Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. 
Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, Andy Turner, myself, and Michael Schneerson. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. On a cold morning in 1977, Sandy Beal was found shot to death in her car. I was like, there's no way. It's just, it's just no way that this could be. Sandy's death was ruled a suicide, but her family has always questioned the official story. To this day, they believe the police knew more than they let on. I didn't take any of their crap because I could tell that they were hiding something. Listen to What Happened to Sandy Beal on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When a trivial accusation started on an anonymous internet forum, the Korean hip-hop star Tableau was at the top of his game. But then, rumors started to spread that he wasn't who he said he was. I'm Dexter Thomas, the host of a new podcast from Vice about a bizarre conspiracy that turned into an international obsession. Listen to Authentic, the story of Tableau on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Laundronauts, a potentially untrue tale based on actual events. A young boy is shoved into a washing machine and vanishes. His friends try to rescue him, only to discover a magical world beyond the machine. Season one stars Ed Asner and me, John Cameron Mitchell. Find J.D. Belzell and bring him back home safely. Listen to The Laundronauts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah.